Previously on The Great James Bond Car Robbery. The car is an icon. The DB5 was the queen of all gadgets. Do I have $200,000 for this historic vehicle, ladies and gentlemen? A half a million or even or one million would have protected the investment, but he insured it for $4.2 million. The car was stolen in 1997 from an airport hangar in Boca Raton, Florida, and hasn't been seen since. They sliced through the molding on the hangar door, cut the metal latch, snipped the alarm wire. And now we're in a situation where the insurance company would like their car back. Welcome to the great James Bond car robbery with me, Elizabeth Hurley. Episode 5, Obsession and Dedication. So... Is our quest to recover the greatest Bond car of all time, the stolen Aston Martin DB5, finally at an end? There it stands, at last, right here in front of us. It's a culmination of a dream, isn't it? You know, a full-size Bond car. The elegant bodywork of the most famous car in the world. The DB5 is, a, is an icon in itself. The Bond connection is just the cherry on top. We're standing in one corner of a huge workshop, not unlike Q's gadget lab in a Bond film, surrounded by dozens of beautiful vintage cars being polished, revived and restored. But the DB5 is the one that catches the eye. Every detail on this vehicle is immaculate, from the secret weapons... So the indicators drop, the barrels for the machine guns protrude out of the front. To the finest defence systems Her Majesty's Secret Service can provide. So we've got oil slick, smoke, front rams, rear rams and the bulletproof shield. Plus we can rotate the number plates. So, case closed? Well, maybe. Or maybe this is a story closer to Jurassic Park than Thunderball. The car in front of us is an authentic Aston Martin DB5, that's true. But sadly, it's not the same vehicle stolen in Boca Raton in 1997. Instead, it's the next best thing, a clone. One of 25 perfect clones created here at Aston Martin Works in England as part of Aston's DB5 continuation project. Each vehicle painstakingly recreated from the stolen original, using only the techniques and technology of the 60s. We've been granted a special audience with Aston Martin Works president Paul Spires, the mastermind behind the project. He's particularly proud of the car's rotating foreign license plates. And as we turn the, the switch, it just rotates round. When you went to France, you became French. Ken Adam and John Steers would be proud. I hope Paul wouldn't mind me saying that he's clearly a man obsessed. So that tilts up and the red button basically then deploys whatever gadget is selected in the centre console. It's the same obsession with the detail and mythology of this car that has driven so many people we've met in this story. We are making an eight-part podcast about it after all. What little boy doesn't want to kind of build, you know, a full-size Bond car, and to be able to build 25 Goldfinger cars is absolutely the highlight of my career. So, 
An obsession with this particular car can create marvels. It can also make dreams come true. But in this episode, we'll be telling the story of how an obsession with the Goldfinger DB5 can also lead to a much darker place. A story that takes us back to Bokorotan. A story of brothers-in-law divided by money, of hatred, divorce, and a pistol on the steps of the US Capitol. In South Florida, the stolen Goldfinger DB5 still has plenty of fans. Oh, absolutely! That car was the best! Are you kidding? This is Jeffrey Fisher, one of the best family and divorce lawyers in the United States. It doesn't take much to reawaken his inner Bond fan. You know, it had the machine guns, it had the ejector seat, it had the smoke bombs, it had the bulletproof shield, it had the roof that popped off. You know, it was uh, iconic. In some ways, South Florida can be a small place. All the really successful lawyers like Jeffrey know each other. And they're always keen to find out what the other guy's up to. Oh, you spoke to Coleman. Okay. <laughs> he means Gregory Coleman, former president of the Florida Bar Association. The two of them go way back to the 80s. Coleman, <laughs> you know, he's my friend, but, you know, he had more hair and he was skinny back then. <laughs> now he's got less hair and he's a little overweight. And here's Gregory Coleman himself. I primarily practice uh, in the area of complicated business litigation. All trial work, though, no uh, drafting. He didn't comment on whether Fisher had gained weight or lost hair over the years. Florida is a good place for elite lawyers like this. Plenty of rich retirees from the Northeast, for one thing. As the old saying goes, if you're over 70 and you live in New York or New Jersey, they make you go to Florida. We heard from Greg Coleman briefly in episode two. He's a personal lawyer for the last known owner of the DB5, Anthony Puglesi III. He's a man with strong feelings for his client. Anthony Puglisi is, is a wonderfully charismatic man and just a lot of fun to be around. Both lawyers remember one case where they went head to head and it was a case closely connected to Mr. Puglisi and the Goldfinger DB5 and the mysterious theft of that car from Boca Raton Airport in 1997. This would go under the no good deed goes unpunished category. Remember this? Ladies and gentlemen, 113 is the 1964 Aston Martin DB5, as featured in the film Goldfinger. Stunningly presented with fully functioning gadgets as used by James Bond himself. New York, 1986. The Goldfinger DB5 goes on sale at Sotheby's and is won by a movie-obsessed real estate developer from Florida, Anthony Puglesi III. It's going. Sold. James Bond's Aston Martin DB5 sold for $250,000, ladies and gentlemen. When Puglesi wins the DB5 at auction, he doesn't collect the keys in person. Publicity shots from the time show the handover taking place with Mr. Puglesi's brother-in-law, Robert Luongo. You can tell it's a big day for him. He's looking sharp in a chunky 80s jacket, pocket handkerchief, open neck shirt, neatly trimmed beard, and a smile that says he can't believe his luck. And it was unquestionably a day that changed his life. While Anthony Puglesi might have owned the Goldfinger car, it was Robert Luongo who made it his life's work. 
Robert died some years ago, so we don't have his version of the story that follows, and Anthony Pugliese declined our request for an interview. But Robert Luongo's name keeps coming up while we've been researching this story. He's someone everyone seems to have an opinion about. Greg Coleman, the lawyer, for example. Mr. Luongo was Anthony Puglisi's brother-in-law. He married Anthony's sister. He was a Harvard graduate, very intelligent intellectually, but couldn't get out of his own way. Couldn't get a job, couldn't find his way to make $50,000 a year. When Anthony had made all of this money through all of these wonderful businesses that he had run. The other lawyer, Jeffrey Fisher, remembers it differently. When I first met him, he was an ox. Very differently. The strongest. He was like a linebacker, a rugby player. He was just um, a brute of a guy with a curly hair and a lovely smile. And Every time he came to my office, it was a good event. As he speaks, Fisher grabs something off a bookshelf in his office. Can you see that? It's a cast iron lion. And he gave it to me because I was his, you know, I was his lion. I was here to fight for him. And eventually, Robert Luongo did need someone to fight for him. But on the day the DB5 is bought at auction... He and Anthony Pugliese are family. Pugliese is already a highly successful businessman, and he sees a way to help out a brother-in-law who seems to be struggling. So Anthony kindly hired him to do miscellaneous work, you know, around his companies. And one of the things that he was hired to do was to oversee this car. And so Robert's obsession with the car begins. He devotes himself to maintaining its condition, servicing the gadgets, researching its history. Who could blame him? As we know, it's something this car does to people. People would inquire about showing it at car shows. So Robert oversaw the maintenance of the car and making sure that the car was properly transported to these shows and set up. By the early 1990s, the DB5 has become a traveling tourist attraction touring museums and exhibitions across the country, lovingly supervised by Robert Luongo. And the car's continuing fame and mythology in this era, the idea that it was still the most famous car in the world, well, Robert's work contributed to that. At least, that's what would later be argued in court. Even some of the other Bond experts we spoke to remember just how completely focused on the DB5 Robert Luongo became, to the extent that actually talking business about the car could be difficult. John Cork of the Ian Fleming Foundation tried to arrange for the DB5 to be on display at a few exhibitions. Here's his impression of Robert's negotiating style. It's a very special car. It's, it's, it's more than just about the movie or Goldfinger. It's its own thing. And you go, that's all great. We're fully supportive of that. What will it take to get this car exhibited at this event? You know, we've turned down this Concourse d'Elegance. It just weird. It's got to be a particular type of situation. It's got to, and it's like, that's all right. You can say no, or you can say yes and tell us what the deal is. Eventually, John says he gave up and hired a Batmobile for the exhibit instead. I think he expected that, you know, his enthusiasm would rub off on everybody else. And it didn't necessarily. 
Mary Sealhorst, the museum curator we heard from in earlier episodes. She met Robert while arranging for the car to be displayed at the Henry Ford Museum. I was sort of used to it from working at Henry Ford Museum, which was kind of known for its cars. So I could sort of deal with that. And I've been working with car museums for many, many years. And I am well aware that there are a lot of people who are kind of over the top. People get very sort of almost obsessive about particular type of car, particular mark or a model. And in this case, there was this famous movie car and Robert was all in for this thing. One photo from the time shows Robert grinning from underneath the DB5, adjusting or fixing yet another detail. It's been a long time ago now. <laughs> he, he always seemed a little rumpled. Like, I'm not saying he lived in his car, but his car had that lived-in look. Like he had been following this truck around for forever, you know, going from place to place to exhibit this car. And it, it, it was a very lived-in kind of feel. He had these big binders. You know, I remember when he showed up to the museum, he had these these binders on the front seat that were just full of photos of all these different places where it had been. I remember taking him to eat in the, in the museum cafeteria. We had lunch together, I think the day that we were putting the car in place and he attached all the gadgets and stuff. We just talked a little bit about other things. And that was where I first became aware that he was doing all of this for no pay. He was doing this just to promote the car and that it was owned by this other guy, Anthony Puglisi. Working without a salary. Things had changed with Anthony Puglisi. He put Robert on the payroll to help him with the job. And at some point, you know, either Robert didn't earn his wage or didn't work hard enough or Mr. Puglisi got tired of helping him out and he said, you know, you're done. It's not clear whether Leongo was allowed to keep a commission when the car was exhibited, but it is known that he was no longer an employee of Puglisi. Greg Coleman thinks one specific incident may have contributed to the falling out. I have to tell you the side story. Larry King Live was having a show, had something to do with the Kennedy assassination. They wanted to have the gun on the show. Another piece of macabre memorabilia that Anthony Puglisi owned was the gun used to kill Lee Harvey Oswald, the man who assassinated President Kennedy. So Anthony asked Robert to take the gun, the $2 million gun, up to Washington, D.C., go straight to Larry King's studio, show them the gun, let them do whatever they were going to do, go back to the airport and fly home. But it didn't turn out that way. Everything was set. Well, Robert had a, a few extra minutes on his hand, so he decided to walk over to the Capitol, and he saw a senator walking down the steps and thought, wow, this senator would probably like to see a piece of history, approached the senator, who he didn't know, said, wouldn't you love to see the gun that Ruby used to kill Oswald? Open up a briefcase. The gun is there. The next thing you know, the Capitol Police have arrested him and confiscated the gun. And they put in a furnace any gun that is uh, confiscated at the Capitol. This is the only gun, to our knowledge, that ever made it around that process. We haven't been able to confirm this story. And of course, we aren't able to hear Robert's side. But Coleman says things changed after that. So he was let go for that. But he insisted on continuing to want to work with the car. And Anthony, in hindsight, not to his credit, but at the time to his credit, said, you know what? 
they pay fees for this car when it gets shown, $20,000, $30,000. So if you want to take the car and show it in Las Vegas, you can keep the fee as long as you do everything you're supposed to do. And so he did that for a period of time, for a number of years, actually. And so that was his involvement with the car. Not an employee, but still allowed to stay close to the DB5. I think Robert never respected Anthony because Robert went to Harvard and considered himself to be incredibly intelligent and educated when Anthony, who he viewed as intellectually below him, had made all of this money. So I think there was a great deal of jealousy by Robert towards Anthony. So by the mid-90s, Robert Luongo is off the payroll, but is still working on the beloved DB5, taking it to museums, negotiating with people like Mary Sealhorst and John Cork, and then... Palm Beach Post, June 20th, 1997. Burglars bag James Bond's Aston Martin. Tallahassee Democrat. Police won't have trouble spotting this stolen car. The priceless Aston Martin was driven in the movies by Bond. James Bond. If you remember from earlier episodes, the DB5 was insured when it was stolen. Of course it was, heavily insured. In fact, there was $4.2 million worth of insurance on a car that had been bought for just one sixteenth of that amount a decade earlier. After the car was stolen, insurance investigators concluded that a full payout was required under the terms of the policy. And naturally, all of that money would go to the legal owner of the car, Anthony Puglesi, not to the man who'd carefully transported it, proudly exhibited it, and lovingly cared for it on a day-to-day basis for years, Robert Luango. So what I remember first is that Robert Luongo came to my office. Jeffrey Fisher, the lawyer. And wanted me to help him collect money from the insurance proceeds. And he said, I think I need to hire you. And here's where Luongo and Puglesi's accounts differ. Robert said he was promised 10% of the value of the car, whether it was sold, traded, stolen, whatever claiming this was promised as an incentive to him to keep working on the car without being an employee. You know, Robert felt that he had contributed to the value of the car, and even after he went off the payroll, Robert continued to work on the car. And he wanted his 10%, which was $420,000. The reason why he did all that work was because there was a $420,000 pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Anthony Puglesi sort of bit differently. He was like, you know, who's this punk lawyer who's going to sue me for my brother-in-law on a, on a contract that I never signed? So it goes to court in front of a jury in Palm Beach County in Florida. More than $400,000 at stake and our two hotshot lawyers face off. Fisher for Robert Luongo and Coleman for Anthony Puglesi. Yes, I tried the case for Anthony. It was a very personal case. When Robert Luongo was on the stand, the two of them, the tension was palpable. The hatred was palpable. So the two of them hated each other, literally hated each other. Some of the facts of the case are clear-cut. 
Robert Luongo hadn't purchased the car, hadn't bought a share of the car, and never had a written contract specifying that he was entitled to a cut of any sale or insurance payout. Or it seems that way. Jeffrey Fisher, acting for Robert Luongo, had a plan. So there was no written contract, but contracts can be made orally. You can do an oral contract. And then there's another concept in the law. And the concept is, if there's no contract, but I render a service to you, and you accept the service, and the service gives you value, I'm entitled to the value that I give you equitably. And he tried the case the right way. He tried the case the way I would have tried the case if I had been in his shoes. And that was, he brought in 10 banker's boxes of documents, invoices, brochures, check stubs that showed all of the work, the promotional work that Robert had done on the car. Evidence of dedication, evidence of obsession. And he basically said to the jury, this was a case of a verbal contract where Robert said he was promised 10% of the value of the car, whether it was sold, traded, stolen, whatever. The lack of a written contract wasn't decisive. The evidence of obsession and dedication, that was just as important. Because Jeffrey Fisher argues that Robert Luongo's obsessive work had made the DB5 more famous and so more valuable. Fisher began calling up every museum curator Luongo had dealt with. So I got a witness from the New York Auto Show to tell the story. Then the car went to the Blackhawk, which is another very famous automotive museum and I contacted the Blackhawk and I said do you know Robert yes we do do you know the owner of the car no who's that well who did you interact with on this car Robert Luongo there was also evidence of Robert's ingenuity in trying to get the car displayed and the New York Auto Show was held at the Jacob Javits Center And he got it to the loading dock and said, you know, it's going in the show. And a bunch of Teamsters looked at him and said, this car doesn't go anywhere. The Teamsters, the powerful and sometimes notorious labor union. Unless the Teamsters say it's going somewhere and you didn't make an agreement with the Teamsters. So Robert didn't know what to do. So what did he do? He put a couple of Teamsters in the car and snapped pictures of them and gave them the pictures and the car went from the loading dock to the Jacob Javits Center to the New York Auto Show. So he's a clever guy. The idea with all of this was to show that Luongo's dedication to promoting the car had raised its public profile, increased its fame and so contributed to it becoming more valuable. The insurance valuation of $4.2 million That reflected Robert Luongo's hard work, or at least that was Jeff Fisher's argument. Technology was also changing court cases like this. In those days, when you took someone's testimony, you typically had a court reporter that typed up what the person said. But 
video depositions were just beginning to be utilized. And this was the very first case that I took a video deposition in. That turned out to be really bad timing for Mr. Pugliese. And the video deposition that I took was of Mr. Pugliese. And I took his deposition for hours. And, you know, he basically denied that he had promised Robert a financial interest in the car until one point. And at that one point, he said something to the effect that, oh, yeah, one night we were joking around and I said, you know, if you can ever get rid of the car, I'll give you 10 percent. But I knew he could never do it. So it didn't mean anything. But it did mean a lot for the case. But I had it on videotape. John Cork of the Ian Fleming Foundation says he warned Anthony before the trial. I said, you know, Anthony, um, y- you should settle with Robert Luongo. And, and what I said to him exactly was, do you play the lottery? And he said, no, I don't, I don't play the lottery. And I said, well, let me tell you who serves on juries in Florida, people who play the lottery. And Robert Luongo played the lottery. What he did was he bought a ticket. It was called, I'm going to promote this Aston Martin and I'm going to get its value when... Anthony decides to sell the car for a lot more than he paid for it at auction. And you're going to go to in front of a jury and the jury's going to side with Robert Luongo. And he's like, I can't do it. You don't understand how bad he was to my sister. I just can't do it. I was like, well, okay. Sun Sentinel, 29th of April, 2000. Promoter to get $1 million lawsuit. Robert Luongo won the case. Jurors ordered Boca Raton developer Anthony Pugliese III to give up part of the missing Aston Martin DB5's $4.2 million insurance payout to his former brother-in-law, Robert Luongo. We ended up having to pay him his $420,000, which didn't make me happy, but it is what it is. And karma is, uh, karma, karma is interesting because shortly thereafter, he got sick and passed away, so... Maybe some things still aren't forgiven. In fact, Luongo's payday was even larger. According to local press reports, the judge also awarded him an additional $600,000 for the car's jump in value. In other words, Pugliese was over a million dollars out of pocket by the end of the case. I think it kind of looks a bit like it should come from Chichi Chichi Bang Bang. Back at Aston Martin Works... Paul Spires is demonstrating what seems to be... Well, I'm not sure what it seems to be. There are wires, levers, a gas cylinder, and the taillights of an Aston Martin, all tied together on a stand. This is the very first prototype oil squirter. Yes, an oil squirter. Ken Adams' vision of oil spraying from the rear of Bond's car to get pursuers skidding off the road, ideally followed by a crash, a ball of fire, and a pun from 007. So what you've got here is the rear light cluster from a DB5 mounted to a, a solid aluminium plate. And then you have all the, all the actuators and the electronic wizardry that enables the indicator to lift and deploy the nozzle so that we can squirt water out of it. Real oil makes a bit of a mess in the workshop. So the new continuation Goldfinger DB5s actually squirt water, which can be dyed to look more like oil. 
This is possibly the world's most expensive, elegant and elaborate water pistol. And obviously that needs to retract and then this needs to close. So it's, uh, it's quite a complex bit of kit. And like everything else in Paul's lab, this device comes with an impressive pedigree. In this case, it was designed by Chris Corbold, Oscar winner and probably the greatest special effects designer in Hollywood. This is one of the first prototypes that he manufactured and just over the other side there is actually the machine gun. Obsession with creating or recreating the perfect Goldfinger DB5 is one thing, but the demand for these cars also shows just how badly the original is still missed. When Paul speaks, you could forget that more than 20 years have passed since the Boca Raton break-in. I'd love to see it again. I hate the thought of any Aston Martin disappearing, being broken up, you know, scrapped. To have that car turned back up would be fantastic. I'd love it. Absolutely love it. For me, it'd be like winning the lottery. But, you know, who knows where she is now? Next time on The Great James Bond Car Robbery. Goldfinger. At the end of this chain of thieves, there must be somebody who saw the movie as a kid and it just needed to have that car. It just cracked me up. I, I called this one one of the most boneheaded moves in all of autodom. I'd left my passenger window open and some lady leapt through the window into his lap. These three British companies were absolutely at each other's throats to get your pocket money. <laughs> These guys in their sports cars would go nuts. <laughs> That's all in episode six. The Great James Bond Car Robbery is brought to you by the Spyscape Podcast Network. The producers are Cup and Nuzzle. Disclaimer. The Great James Bond Car Robbery is not affiliated with Eon Productions, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Studios, Inc. or Danjack, LLC. Do you have what it takes to be a true spy? Now you can put your spy skills to the test with Spy Games. Spy Games is the thrilling new experience at Spyscape in New York. Test your strategy, agility and teamwork in high-tech game rooms developed with experts from CIA and Special Ops to stretch your physical and mental agility. Inspired by the CIA's operational training at the farm, Spy Games will help you develop strengths you didn't know you had. Think true spies in real life. Find out more at spygames.com.